This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving break last week. This week's episode is episode 305, entitled, Were the Opponents of First John Jews? Now, we've been spending quite a few episodes trying to discern the identity of the opponents in the New Testament book entitled First John. We've been surveying various approaches to identifying who these opponents are and why First John was written in order to shore up the faith of its community in light of the heresies that were spoken by these opponents. So four weeks ago, we looked at the suggestion that the opponents were Gnostics. Three weeks ago, we explored the possibility that the opponents were Docetic Christians. Two weeks ago, we examined the possibility of the opponents articulating a separationist Christology, usually attributed to Serenthus. And last week, we inquired as to whether the opponents downplayed the relevance of Jesus' humanity in one way or another. And after studying these four very popular scholarly approaches to the identification of the opponents of 1st John, neither fully explained the biblical data, nor did they make the best accounting for history. So this week's episode, we'll look at the interpretation of the identity of the opponents of 1st John as Jews. Namely, persons who were formerly Jewish Christian members of the Johannine community who abandoned their belief in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. I will begin by detailing the arguments in favor of those who regard the opponents as those who were Jews, Jewish members of the Christian community. And then I will detail the arguments offered against this sort of identification, and in the end, you, the listener, can decide for yourself which side has actually made the better reading of the available data, the text of 1 John, and of history. So, were the opponents of 1 John Jews who left the community because they were no longer convinced that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah, electing to return to the local synagogue in order to participate in Judaism? And was 1 John written to strengthen the faith of this community of Christians against these opponents who outright question the legitimacy of Jesus' Messiahship? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at arguments in favor of the theory of Jewish opponents. So let's make sure that we get a good definition down in regard to this particular theory so that we can understand it as best as we possibly can. So, in this theory, the opponents mentioned in 1 John were Jewish Christians, and they were former members of the Johannine community. They were members in the church to which 1 John was written. And for one reason or another, they abandoned their belief 
in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the most fundamental claim to early Christianity. Now, the reasons for why a Jewish Christian would give up their belief in Jesus as Messiah are pretty numerous. There are quite a few available historical possibilities as to why a Jewish Christian would stop believing in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So they could just no longer be convinced of the truthfulness of this claim. It could be that they wanted to return to the safe haven of the synagogue where they grew up. It could also be that they were dissuaded of the gospel by some traveling Jewish prophets or Jewish apologists. It could be that they were being persecuted by the Roman authorities and the church and that they knew that they had some diplomatic immunity while they were in the synagogue and so they wanted to avoid that persecution and so the best thing to do in order to protect themselves and their families was to give up belief in Jesus the Jewish Messiah in order to fall back in under the much more protected synagogue. In fact, there are several examples in the New Testament itself where the church had to struggle to preserve the allegiance of its members to the confession of Jesus as the Christ over against pressures of Judaism or from persecution from various non-Jewish civic authorities. And so we can see these conflicts in many of the books in the New Testament. In particular, I'm thinking of the Gospel of Matthew. Clearly, it's all over the Gospel of John. It's throughout the book of Acts. It's mentioned in key places in 2 Corinthians. It's clearly one of the defining points in Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's mentioned in Philippians chapter 3. It's one of the key features in the letter to the Colossians. It's a big issue in the book of Hebrews, and you can see it in the various conflicts of the individual churches in the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 2 through 3. And these are just the major examples. You could find some other examples in some of the other New Testament books. So, what is the biblical data within 1 John itself that scholars use to suggest that the opponents are Jews? They are Jewish Christians who were formerly members of the Johannine community, but they left because they can no longer confess Jesus as the Jewish Messiah for one reason or another. So the key passage that we've had to look at in all of these reconstructions is the very first mention of the opponents in 1 John chapter 2, basically verses 18 through 23. I'm going to read the entire thing in order to give us that context. So starting in 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. 
the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. That's 1 John 2, verses 18 through 23. So, in this reconstruction, it's argued that the simplest, plainest, on-the-surface reading in regard to the identity of those who left are those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. They're denying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And the interesting thing is that this is the first occurrence of the word antichrist in Christian literature. And what is an antichrist? An antichrist is just someone who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, which makes sense. They are antichrist. And notice that antichrist here is not a single person. It's not a single end times figure. It's any person that does not agree that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, they deny that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And here we can see that many antichrists have appeared. They were former members of the community, but they left because they now deny that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And in doing so, they deny the Son. But the author First John is saying that if you deny the Son, you also are denying the Father, because the Father has, of course, confessed to the authenticity of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Jewish Messiah. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father, but if you confess the Son, then you have the Father also. So that's the key passage that has to be taken seriously in any of these reconstructions. The next key passage is in 1 John chapter 4. Usually it's just verse 2, but I'm going to read the context, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. That's 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. So we can see in this passage that we have a slightly different group, and I've argued this in the previous episodes. This is a different group of persons. These are traveling false prophets. And what are these traveling false prophets saying? They are saying that... Jesus really hasn't come. They're not confessing that Jesus Christ has actually come in the flesh, has really and genuinely come. They don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. And so it's kind of framed here in the positive sense that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has authentically come in the flesh is from God. But if you aren't from God then you are a false prophet. And those persons don't confess Jesus. They won't acknowledge Jesus. Namely, they won't acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. So these seem to be Jewish traveling false prophets. And we have evidence for this in the book of Acts. There are traveling false prophets that are Jews. They are members of Judaism, but they are not convinced of Christian claims. In fact, they seem to be against Christian claims. And we're seeing again that these persons who deny the fact that 
Messiah Jesus has actually come, that the Messiah, who is Jesus, has actually come in the flesh, these people are described as antichrist. They are against the Christ. So an antichrist is someone who rejects Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. They are not future end times individuals. Although I guess anybody in the future that denies that Jesus is the Christ could be called antichrist. But it's not a single figure. It's anybody who rejects that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Now, it's interesting that this passage in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, also has a parallel in 2 John chapter 7, which seems to be the key passage in 2 John that gives the reason for why that epistle was actually written. And so, if this theory is correct, that the people that don't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh are those who are rejecting the authenticity of Jesus as Messiah who has actually come, then that would also pertain to the meaning of the book of 2 John, where also we can see that those persons are described as antichrist because they are against the actual Christ. They are against the truth of the Christ and who he actually is, which is Jesus of Nazareth. The third passage we have to look at is in chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. This is the reference to the three fold confession of the spirit and the water and the blood. So let's read this passage, starting in verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with blood. It is the spirit that testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. That's 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. So notice here that it begins by describing those who have actually conquered the world, namely those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They are making that fundamental Christian confession that Jesus is the Son of God, which is the title for the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And then the authenticity of this Son of God is confirmed with the three witnesses, the water and the blood and the Spirit. I've argued before that the water and blood are indicative of the true humanity of Jesus, as we can see in the Gospel of John chapter 19, when Jesus is pierced on the cross and water and blood come out, proving that Jesus is real. He's authentic. He's a real human being. And, of course, the Spirit also is testifying about this particular truth. This is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father. And the Spirit and the water and blood are all in agreement on the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. That's clearly the meaning of the passage based on the opening verse there in verse 5. So those are the three major passages that have to be discussed in regard to the opponents in this passage in 1 John, but there are a variety of other passages in 1 John that also indicate that the issue that needs to be addressed is shoring up faith and confidence in the identity of Jesus actually as the Jewish Messiah. So take, for example, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you 
so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And there in the Greek, there's this heavy emphasis. It's emphatic with the additional pronoun there. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Why would you have to stress that to Christians? Well, there is the truth about the authenticity of Jesus as the saving Messiah that is under attack by the opponents, those who have seceded from the community. So, of course, you have to shore up faith in this particular point. Namely, Jesus himself is the one who died for our sins. In chapter 2, verse 24, we see a little bit more of the same, which says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's chapter 2, verse 24. Notice that the abiding is not just abiding in God, but there's an abiding in the Son. There is a fellowship and a sharing with the Son along with the Father. Notice that they're not abiding in the Spirit, because they're not abiding in the Father, Son, and Spirit. That doctrine of three persons is not present in the first three centuries of the Christian era. So here they're abiding in the Son of God, and they're abiding in God, but it indicates that that which they have heard from the beginning, namely the testimony of the gospel, the beginning of their Christian experience, if they abide in that, then they're also abiding in the Son. In chapter 3, verse 23, it says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So there, the commandment that the readers of 1 John are supposed to obey is to believe in the name of his son. Notice that God is described as a singular person with a singular pronoun, his. Believing in the name of God's son, who is that? Jesus Christ. That fundamental Christian confession, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And then, of course, loving one another as he commanded. In chapter 4, verse 10, we read that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we can see there, again, the stress there is that God actually did send his son. He actually did send the Jewish Messiah to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. A few verses later, in verses 14 through 15, we read that we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Notice again, there is this stress on truly confessing that Jesus is the Son of God because the opponents are rejecting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. They were rejecting that Jesus is the Son of God. So there is this emphasis on God having truly sent and authorized the Son. He's not a false Messiah. He's not a Messianic pretender. God really did send and authorize the Son to be the agent of salvation as the Jewish Messiah. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the children born of him. That's chapter 5, verse 1. 
Again, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if you do so, you're part of God's family. You are born of God. In chapter 5, verse 10, we get another lengthy description of the importance of this particular confession of Jesus' messianic status. It says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. Again, it's just this broken record at this point. You have to believe in the Son of God. You have to believe in Jesus, in his most basic Christological understanding. He is the promised Jewish Messiah. It's the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So this is the Son of God. The Son, of course, is not God. He is God's Son. They are clearly distinguished. And in order to possess eternal life, you have to possess the Son. And that much is made clear. And then finally, at the end of 1 John, we read in verse 20, 1 John 5, 20, it says, We know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him, who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's First John chapter 5, verse 20. The author indicates to the audience that we know, we have confidence, we know that the Son of God has truly come because there are those that don't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. So I think there is a lot of evidence in First John in basically every chapter of the document indicating the importance of Jesus being the Son of God. And it seems that this is the simplest reading of the heresy that's being expounded by the opponents, those who have seceded from the community. And they seem to be Jews, formerly Jewish Christians, that have given up their Christianity because they no longer believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This seems to be the simplest and plainest reading of the evidence. So I think that the suggestion of the identity of the opponents offered here relies on the clearest reading of the key passages. It doesn't involve any mere readings like a lot of the previous proposals. It doesn't involve any convoluted interpretations. It doesn't involve the opinions of church fathers whose lives did not actually overlap the life of the author of 1 John. You can come to this understanding by reading 1 John by itself. So 1 John seems to have, interestingly enough, the very same issue with the Jews not believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that the Gospel of John has dealt with. And this should not be a surprise to anybody in light of the close proximity between the Gospel of John and the epistles of John. So again, it's the most natural reading. If there's a close association between 1 John and the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John, the opponents of Jesus, are Jews who do not believe that he really is the Messiah. And the Gospel of John is written specifically, according to John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then we shouldn't be surprised that a similar thing is taking place in 1 John. 
So there are the arguments in favor of the opponents mentioned in 1 John as being simply Jews. Okay, this moves us to our second point, point number two, the arguments against the theory of Jewish opponents. And certainly there are scholars that have strongly pushed back against this particular argument. They basically can be broken down into three major rebuttals. So rebuttal number one, the opponents appear to be Christians after they have left. This argument has been made strongly by C.K. Barrett, who was a world-famous scholar in the 20th century. He has since died. And C.K. Barrett argued, based on a particular passage that he points to, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-4, through 4, he argues that the opponents who left the community continued to maintain their Christian identity. So, C.K. Barrett argues, they couldn't be Jews who no longer believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah because once they left, they continued to be Christians. Now, I want to read this passage, and I want to talk about it. So, 1 John 2, verses 3-4, through 4, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So Barrett argues that the person who says, I have come to know him, is the description of the opponents who left the community. Therefore, they are actually maintaining their Christian identity, and they couldn't just be Jews who have abandoned their Christianity, who have abandoned their belief in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So my response to this is that it's, it's not actually clear that this particular passage that Barrett wants to rest his case on is directly referring to the opponents. Remember, 1 John introduces the opponents and the circumstances of their secession from the community, in addition to their denial that Jesus is the Christ, later in the chapter, in verses 19 through 22. It has not already been introduced by this passage in verses 3 through 4. So it seems very unlikely that the author is directly referring to the secessionist here in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. It seems much more likely that this passage, chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, is a general pastoral reminder to the current members of the community to obey Jesus' commandments as the natural extension of of their confession to know him. Okay, the second rebuttal that scholars offer against the theory that the opponents are Jews is by looking at the context of 1 John where it doesn't appear to be overly Jewish. So they look at 1 John and they say, well, it doesn't seem to have this big, massive Jewish flavor. Why would you suggest that the opponents are Jews? Because 1 John respond to the heresy that's being propagated by these opponents. If the response doesn't seem to be overly Jewish, then why would we conclude that the opponents are Jewish? And so these scholars suggest that there doesn't seem to be much of a trace of Jewishness in 1 John that we would expect if it was written to address Jewish Christians renouncing their faith and leaving the community. And my response to this is the fact that 
the titles that are regularly given for the Jewish Messiah are quite common in 1 John. So Jesus is described as the Christ eight times in 1 John. And Jesus is also described as the Son of God, which is the title for the Jewish Messiah, for the Christ, or some variation of Son of God, namely his Son or the Son, a total of 22 times. So you've got eight occurrences of Christ and 22 occurrences of Son or Son of God. You actually have 30 references that are Jewish references to the identity of Jesus, and 30 references divided by 105 verses basically means that Jesus is described as the Jewish Messiah in a little over than one out of every four verses. So that seems to be a fairly regular occurrence of the insistence that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Jewish Christ. And it's also quite possible, and I think it's very probable, that the entire community of 1 John was made up of Jewish Christians. And if this was the case, then it is unlikely that the opponents would have been singled out as Jews, since you don't single out people of your own race. In other words, if the entire community of 1 John was Jewish and some of the people left, you wouldn't point to them and call them Jews. You already know who they are because they're your own people. We have further confirmation of this in 3 John, verse 7, where the author says that those who have gone out have accepted nothing from the Gentiles, which is not the sort of thing you would say if the community was mostly Gentile. If your entire group was made up of Gentiles, you wouldn't say that those who leave the community have accepted nothing from the Gentiles. That wouldn't make any sense. So the lack of terms like Judean or Jew, etc. in 1 John could actually be read in favor of the opponents being Jewish and, of course, of the entire community being Jewish Christians. So that's the second rebuttal and some of my thoughts in regard to that argument. The third rebuttal, I think, is the one that is the strongest. At least it's the one that's been heralded the loudest by the opponents. And this rebuttal says that 1 John never once quotes the Old Testament. And if the opponents were Jewish, you would expect that 1 John would be defending the legitimacy of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah by quoting the Old Testament. And this seems on the surface to be a pretty strong argument. If the Messiahship of Jesus was the central issue that the opponents disagreed on, then we would expect a lot of augmentation from the Old Testament in order for the author to argue his particular point and to strengthen the faith of his community. However, 1 John was not written to those persons who left. It's not written to those who seceded. It's not written to answer their concerns and to win them back. It is written specifically to the community that is still there, those who are still participating in the community, those that are still standing. And in fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 indicates that those who are still in the community have overcome the Antichrist. They've overcome them. They've already conquered them. And so the author, in this sense, is literally preaching to the choir. 
He's not talking to those who have left. And so he doesn't need to supply Jewish proof text in order to make his particular point. Now, it is true that there are no explicit Old Testament quotations in 1 John. However, I think that there are several Old Testament allusions and references which indicates the Jewishness of the character of the response and the Jewishness of the Christian community to which 1 John was written. Let me give you some examples. There is an extended discussion in regard to Cain and Abel in 1 John 3, verses 7-15. through 15. It's a pretty lengthy passage. And this presupposes that the audience is well familiarized with the story of Cain and Abel and the development of the lore surrounding these characters within Jewish thought. My next example looks at the Greek word elasmos in 1 John 2, verse 2. It's typically translated as propitiation. He himself was a propitiation for our sins. And this is a common atonement word. It has atonement resonances that would be easily recognized by a Jewish Christian audience who've come out of the Mosaic Covenant in which they are quite familiar with the concept of atonement. We can also look at the concept of fellowship that is conditioned by obedience, as we see in the opening chapter of 1 John and 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. It indicates that fellowship with God is conditioned on obedience. And this is the basic way in which the covenant has operated in Judaism. In Judaism, the members of the covenant, the people of God, they maintain their position in the covenant by being obedient to the covenant. And so that sort of concept reappears here. And so it would be familiar to those who obviously were Jews. The next example describes this interesting passage in chapter 5, verse 16, involving a sin that leads to death. And many scholars think that the sin that leads to death probably presupposes the understanding of sins committed with a high hand that are mentioned in the Old Testament, such as the ones that we observe in Numbers 15, verses 22 through 31. So we have the Old Testament sins with a high hand, and we have the sin that leads to death, and they seem to be describing the same thing. Now, in chapter 1, verse 9, it describes God as faithful and just. Pistos and vikeos, faithful and just. And the passage goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, to describe the forgiveness of sins. And this, I think, recalls the eight characteristics of Israel's God in Exodus 34, 6-7, where God himself describes himself with eight characteristics, which also are closely associated with, guess what? The forgiveness of sins. Now, we read the passage in chapter 5 concerning the witness of the water and the blood and the Spirit that together point to the authenticity of Jesus as the Jewish Christ, as the Son of God. And I think that this draws on the Deuteronomic principle that every fact must be established by the basis of two or three witnesses. 
So you can read about that in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 indicates that the devil has sinned from the beginning, and it also states that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And I think this is possible. I can't prove it, but I think possibly this is offering a Christian interpretation of what's called the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman is promised to crush the serpent's head. So we have the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head, and we have the Son of God destroying the works of the devil. So maybe that is showing an understanding of Genesis 3.15, at least with a Christian interpretation. And finally, the last verse of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 21, brings the exhortation to a close with a call to guard yourselves from idols. And the call to watch out for idols is a common trope mentioned throughout, guess what, throughout the Hebrew Bible. So there might not be any explicit quotations from the Old Testament, but my goodness, there are so many allusions to the Old Testament that any Jew would obviously be able to see and recognize, suggesting that the community is a Jewish-Christian community and that the three rebuttals offered against the suggestion that the opponents were Jewish really aren't very strong. So in conclusion, I am actually convinced based on the evidence that the opponents of 1 John are Jews who were former members of the community that seceded when they rejected the most fundamental claim of early Christianity, namely that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Rather than overly complex and convoluted suggestions that the opponents are Gnostics, Docetists, followers of Serenthus, or deniers of Jesus' humanity, I think the simplest explanation of the data, although admittedly it's not the flashiest, the simplest explanation, is to take seriously the fact that the secessionists have rejected Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we explore the various ways in which pre-Christian Judaism developed and originated the doctrine of the incarnation of the word or wisdom of God that became flesh. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. If you like our podcast, be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. You can subscribe for free on YouTube and on iTunes. And if you like this episode, be sure to share it with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation to the podcast, check out the episode description for a PayPal link, and you can also subscribe with a monetary membership on the YouTube channel. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.